Okay, so this episode, it's episode 96 at this point, and we have actually someone in, in person for once, so that's been a few months, but it's Paul Onid, and this one's kind of interesting because I used to power lift with Paul, um, with our team Power Act Strength, I want to say like five years ago, and at the time, he was one of the best squatters in the world. He had an over 800 pound squat. That has obviously changed. There's people who've been squatting 900, 1,000 for a while. But it's interesting because he's been in the game for a while. Um, a lot of the stuff we talk about is just kind of myths between bodybuilding and powerlifting and kind of just his opinion on how athletes should train. Um, and we kind of dive into early specialization, especially with powerlifting. But we also dabble in bodybuilding a bit. And then we just talk about his new app called MetroLife. So... It's an interesting podcast because we go from like strict powerlifting meathead stuff to some of the psychological stuff involved with um, leading a healthy lifestyle, lifting, and just kind of the effect it can have overall on your life, and then how to measure it and get better. So enjoy the episode. Something we always appreciate is if you can share this, something that goes a long way, especially weirdly is Instagram seems to pop up a lot of referrals for our podcast, but when you tag us um, personally in those posts, we can repost that and then get this, the word out there. So appreciate all the support. Enjoy the episode. Shut up and sit down. Welcome back to the podcast. We haven't had a guest in person in quite a while, but we've got one, so we're actually gonna we're squeezing in an extra episode. We usually record on Thursday, stays a Sunday. Not that it gives matters one bit to you guys, but we have Paul Oneid here today. Paul is a pretty renowned powerlifter and coach. But what we're gonna do is because we sort of pulled this one together a little bit shoestring. We didn't have as much time to really prepare it. So, Paul, I actually want you to introduce yourself a little bit, what your work, your academic history, and uh, a little bit about uh, your competitive uh, accomplishments. Sure. So, thanks for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Um, so, my name is Paul O'Neill. I am uh, full, my full-time job is a functional rehabilitation specialist for an insurance company here in Canada. Uh, I've also competed in powerlifting, posted a 1960 total. Uh, by 805 squat, 430 bench press, and a 725 deadlift. Um, so not that much. No, I mean, it's okay. <laughs> well, in days, what weight class? Uh, I did that at 242. Uh, Best Wilkes is a nine or is a 535 at 220, uh, which doesn't mean anything anymore because the Wilkeses are close to 600 now. Yeah. Um, I also am a powerlifting coach and a sports performance coach. My background is in collegiate strength and conditioning. I've uh, been a strength coach at the University of South Florida, Robert Morris University, the University of Tampa, and most recently at Queen's University here in Canada. Uh, I have a master's in exercise science, a master's in sports management, and I'm CSCS certified. Uh, now I just do online coaching, and I recently launched an app with my business partner, Jay Nira. Uh, the app is called MetriLife, and it's an app to help people measure, manage, and adjust their lifestyle for better health and performance in mind and body. You can see why I actually didn't want to try all that. <laughs> that's actually a real shopping cart full of accomplishments. I do some stuff. That's that's a pretty full thing. And it's not like, you know, we're not we're not sitting across from a 60-year-old guy here who's been doing this. How old are you? 31. See, exactly right. That's insane. 
when we were laughing because he's saying like oh like it's the Wilkes are way higher like you were really strong like I think before what 16th in the world and yeah. then, and then now you're not even in the top 30 yeah when I uh, <laughs> when I hit my best uh, best totals my total at 220 was 16th all time uh, and that's like ever across yeah. you know, the 220 weight class and then my squat was eighth all time. And I checked a couple weeks ago, and I think my, my squat is 36th. Yeah. My total is barely in the top 50. These <laughs> days, these days, if you can't total over 2,000, you're not even relevant. Which, which is just nuts, because even when... Um, before this, Paul and I were on the same team, so we were on Power X Strength or 1020 Life, however you want to name that. Um, but even when I was deadlifting, and I wasn't even that good, my deadlift, if I would have hit it, would have been third all time mm-hmm. at 198. At seven thirty-five, I obviously didn't get that, but it's not even that's not even in the top fifty. I don't think anymore. Like no, ma- there are one ninety-eight guys. Like uh, the all-time world record holder is uh, Ben Pollock. Yeah, Ben, and when Ben set the all-time world record at one ninety-eight, deadlift eight fifteen. Yeah, and he was yeah. Well, that's what I mean. And the cuts are bigger. Like Ben is like two thirty. Yeah, yeah. Now he's like two thirty for sure. But it's just nuts. I don't know. It's just it. It's really disheartening. I don't know if disheartening is the word, but you're definitely seeing people take it to the extreme. Yeah. Um, There's more money in the sport. There's more genetic diversity in the sport. There's more... um, uh, I like to use the term misfits in the sport, like people who couldn't do other sports, so they come over to one that's more fringe and allows a little bit more crazy behavior, and that's what they identify with, so they go all in. Um, That's why you're seeing the things that you're seeing. But it is cool though. It's one of those things where like if you're if you actually like the sport, you obviously want to see people lift heavy weights. It's just like what was heavy, I would say like five years ago isn't even close. And like so now it's kind of cool because but it's almost not cool because everyone's watching this and they're almost desensitized to it because everyone's pulling nine hundred now. Not everyone, but there's a lot of people pulling nine hundred. Yeah, it used to be, you know, there's three, four guys pulling over nine, one pulling over a thousand. You knew all of them were. And you knew all of them were. I think even more so than that, I would say on the female side, yeah. the amount of growth there um, has been just amazing. You've got girls like, you know, Stacey Burr, Steffi Cohen, yeah. Maria Gaspier, and Cece Hol- Cece Holcomb just posted a video bench pressing 315 for 10. I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> Back in the day, a deadlift of 315 for 10 by a female would have been all over, like, it would have been on ESPN. Well, and, and but it's almost not, not normal. But like even this morning, there was a strong woman who did five forty two deadlift. Yeah. It's like oh cool. Yeah, it it, it, it sucks because it's not cool now. Like yeah. it is cool, but it's it's almost I, normal. I, it's I like, just I watched Steffi Cohen squat videos in sheer disbelief. I'm like this this isn't real. Like it was like five fifty. And I know it's legit, but I look at it with the same sort of skepticism as. Who's that, that Castleberry idiot with his fake plates, right? Yeah. Which we know is complete bullshit. And you're just looking at this like how is that? Like possible that that little tiny little human because what does she weigh? One hundred and twenty pounds if she's lucky. She competes at one twenty three. Yeah, yeah. twenty three. And you know what's her best squat? Five. She squatted five fifteen. I believe. Yeah, yeah that's insane. I mean, again, like I'm a big dude, but my best ever squat. I've never competed as a powerlifter, and I've never really tried to push it. My best ever squat is a five hundred pound squat. We've got a hundred and twenty some odd pound woman squatting. What's your biggest bench? Maybe she benches. My best bench is a three forty five, which again is nothing crazy for a guy my size. I'm not cut out for powerlifting. 
And Paul's looking to be like, the fuck, really? That's all. <laughs> Andrew's well, old, though, too. I think CC Holcomb benches more than that. Exactly, right? So it just it speaks to how remarkable this shit is. I, mean, I grew up kind of bro bodybuilder world, and then obviously they just got into the evidence-based stuff. And, and all people throw that, that term around evidence-based. It's it, a little bit bullshitty, too. But you try to merge the best of the old world when it comes to training with this, the strong research-based principles where guys like Dr. Mike Isratel and Brad Schoenfeld are, are well, you have to be a lot of the, the stuff that, that they're either creating or interpreting that's getting out there that shows us, okay, the stuff that Arnold and his contemporaries knew, all right, this stuff's legit, and then you just filter out all the crap that's, all right, this stuff is, is kind of bullshit. Like yeah, muscle for sure. Well, you have to, evidence-based in powerlifting is kind of whatever. you got to be a little bit not evidence-based and fucked up to be strong. There's a certain <laughs> amount of that, um, but there is a certain amount of, you know, what's worked will continue to work. Um, I'm big on trying new principles and, and, and different things, and um, I go about, like, I mean, I've coached you before. Well, I was so going to say, even when you were coaching me, you were trying to things, and you would tell me about them, like, oh, this worked for me, let's try this. Yeah, and, and that's that's essentially what it is. You take a... You take a scientific principle, you adapt it in a way that fits with your conceptualization of a training principle or, or an end goal, and you try it. And if it works, that's great. Um, if you always waited for science to prove your strategies, you'd be 20 years behind the curve. And when this point, they're just landing on the same shit they, we already kind of knew. The other thing is, too, is, uh, you know, research is, and I'll never say anything that invalidates research, but research t tends to deal in means. It tends to deal on averages and populations. A, you don't really see a lot of research that people are able to do on elite powerlifters. Elite powerlifters, by their very definition, are going to be the outliers. Mm -hmm. They're going to be very far out on one end of the curve. So there's a lot of stuff that still should translate and apply. But there's going to be room to see what individuals respond to. There are going to be hyper-responders and there's going to be non-responders when it comes to any training stimulus. So you still have to start with the basis of, okay, this is what we know about human physiology. This is what we know. And then you can play around with what works for the individual. Absolutely. And I mean, I would never, I mean, let, let's put this into perspective here. I have four years of postgraduate studies, I'm not going to put something on paper that I don't think is based in science, or at least based in some concept that can be rationalized through science. Um, there's a lot of things that you have to take into account and, and do your best guess on. So, I mean, you, the point you made about the elite being the outliers, that couldn't be more true. That's why they're the elite. You're never going to have a research study where 50 elite lifters say, okay, Mr. Research Scientist, you can have six months of my life. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. They're never not going to do that. And then double blind them. Double blind them. And then what are they going to do? Well, this is powerlifting. Let's be honest. Drugs have a factor. So, I mean, you, you're not going to be able to standardize that protocol. The science can't happen. So you have to understand the concepts you have to understand science and physiology you have to understand biomechanics and you have to put it together and see if your philosophy fits i've never been uh, the type of coach to have one template for everybody uh, when i was coaching dean i coached him differently than i would coach another lifter Stu or jc or, or any of these like very strong guys that i coach 
because they're all different people, they all respond differently. And how do I know that? Because I've tried different things with them. So this, I'm going to steer this into one of the questions that I really love the idea of, because I've kind of said this for years about coaches. I've always found that people with a powerlifting background actually tend to make pretty good trainers. We'll say coaches, but specifically when it comes to training people. Mm -hmm. And I've really often thought that bodybuilders make fucking terrible coaches. So I wanted to see what your thoughts were on that and why, what is it about the powerlifting experience that actually tends to turn around and, and work well to coach others? So I'll tie in a few pieces. So the first one I think of is an eye for technique. Absolutely. Um, when you're competing in powerlifting or trying to lift the most weight possible, you need to move in the most biomechanically efficient way possible. So you learn what those positions look like and feel like, and you can conceptualize that to someone who may not. So that's number one. Number two, I would say, is in the entire paradigm of bodybuilding versus powerlifting, the training session itself for a bodybuilder is a stimulus. More than anything, it's the diet that's going to affect how a bodybuilder responds to their training. With a powerlifter, the training, in my opinion, is the most important part. That's why you have super strong, fat, bloated cellar toads. <laughs> cellar. <laughs> I've never heard that. It's, it's great. Bridge troll works very well, too. But it's because the training itself is that stimulus for strength. You cannot get strong training badly or training ineffectively. You can to a point, but... If you want to be elite, especially these days, your training has to be on point, your diet has to be on point, and you have to be a genetic outlier. So the ability of the person as a powerlifter to say, these training principles have a positive effect, and then I have a better eye for technique, they're going to be better in general. Um, I will say that the ability of bodybuilders to feel a movement, if you're able to conceptualize that verbally to a client, yeah. that could be extremely valuable. Um, but just in and of itself for a bodybuilder, the training has less of a, an impact on the overall outcome. I think there's a couple of things about bodybuilders that tends to be a problem. Uh, number one is you mentioned drugs earlier, but genetics and drugs, I think play an even bigger role in the success and the aesthetic and the look of bodybuilders, which often then has people running to them based on how they look to coach them. A lot of times bodybuilders don't have any formal credentials, certifications, or education coaching other people. And then they'll turn around and spew the second issue, which is a lot of old school dogmatic lore. Um, we throw around the term bro, bro science a lot. And it's like, oh yeah, you know, you got to turn your wrist this way to stimulate the inside part of your bicep. Or, oh, you got to hit your inner chest. And you got to go do pec deck flies. And I mean, this stuff is, is antiquated bullshit for the most part. And I know plenty of people in the you know, men's physique world, bikini, bodybuilding, what have you, that they look fantastic. They have no goddamn business speaking to other human beings about anything to do with coaching. That's probably the toughest part as, you know, as a trainer who has knowledge and who takes pride in the service that they provide. You look at, yeah, maybe a powerlifter might make a better coach, but a bodybuilder is going to make more money. Yeah. Because your body is your business card in, in training. I, I would agree completely. Like, even if you look here, like, so we have a, he always gets on a rant about, like, coaches who, in this city, who just take people's money and they suck shit. Right. 
but they're making a lot of money because mm, they are, the, the ones I would say it, as a whole, it's easier for them to go make money as a totally as a winner of a the, shitty bot. Uh, there's probably also more desire from the general populace to gravitate more towards a bodybuilding coach. Yeah. Well, because I think that's, that's been validated longer but, as trainers than powerlifting coaches are, whereas powerlifting still is quite niche. So I don't think general population people traditionally have sought out powerlifting strength coaches for personal training general goals. I think it's more socially acceptable for longer to go and train with the bodybuilding coach, if that makes sense. It's a bad idea most of the time. There are exceptions, obviously. Um, and what you said about coaches making money, there's potential there for sure. What I have discovered and what I know is the bad coaches tend to develop bad reputations. And then that's the same enough, thing it gets yeah. harder and harder. I guess that's true of politics. It gets harder and harder for some of those coaches, especially if they've been around a long time, to stay high volume. Well, if they win, absolutely, they'll still get the people who want to win at all costs. But, but if they're not if, winning... If, if you're looking at just personal training, though, I would say, like, bodybuilding and powerlifters alike generally don't personally train. Like, that's in the online realm. Like, you know what I mean? Like, a lot of them can have a lot of clients yeah. just online via their strength or via their look. And then that's... Is that personal training at that point? It is and it is Some of them do the... So, like, what you do with coaching is different than, like, what some people do with coaching. Like, some people just do... Sometimes programming is the coaching, but then yeah. sometimes contact and like evaluation of video blah 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 that's the coaching so I guess yeah. to me there's two different things so like I have two different packages on my website I have a programming package where I consult with people once a month they yeah. get their monthly program and then they're on their own or I have my you know constant contact coaching uh, I call it my plus package where plus. I want to see your videos four yeah. or five times a week and we're going to chat almost every day and we're going to make sure that your program is tailored to what you need to do adjust it on the fly, whatever needs to happen in order for you to proceed. And in the online realm, I think that's, if you're able to do it, that's the way to go. Um, and because I'm so opposed to just the program only once a month thing, I actually only price them like 20 bucks apart because I don't want to be that guy. Well, and plus Smart. like, well, it, but it goes back to like, I think that you have a a reputation as well. Sure. And when you when your program's in anyone's hands, I guess like that's the difference between making tons of money and that just by having a program and actually wanting to be a coach. Yeah. Because you're not going to get as much results because anyone can follow anything at this point. I'm very fortunate in the fact that right now I can cherry pick who I choose. Yeah, because it's not your main means. Yeah, it's not my main means of, of income. And um, to be honest, I don't think I would ever want it to be. I really like the other things that I do. Yeah. I find a lot of fulfillment in them. Um, Coaching is genuinely, genuinely something that I'm passionate about, and I, I really love helping others. Um, and I think that the way to, that I do that is through contact with people. So yeah. handing someone a piece of paper with writing on it is great. Um, there's a lot of thought and effort that goes into it, a lot of expertise, but that's not really what the benefit of having me coach someone is. I really believe that, and, and you know, that anyone who's been coached by me will be able to tell you that. Do you think it's easier to coach, as we're going down this rabbit hole, do you think it's easier to coach powerlifters as opposed to the same idea that powerlifting coaches coach powerlifters and it's like a three lifts or like a bodybuilder coaching a bodybuilder? Because there's like so many more dynamics that like you're giving yourself a lot more places to fail at. You know what I mean? I would say that the bodybuilding coach would be more concerned on the diet side. Yeah. Okay. And then the guy goes back to what we were talking about before. Yeah. So... Um, 
that diet is going to be much more important yeah. and nuanced. And, and there's a reason why the top bodybuilding coaches charge what they charge yeah. because they are getting check-ins every day. They're pushing a new diet. Every, like I know, um, Chris Aceto, if, if anyone, he's a very much embedded in the powerlifting community or sorry, in the bodybuilding community. He's been a coach forever. He coaches some of the biggest names in, in IFBB pro bodybuilding. He gets check-ins, pictures every day, and adjusts people's diets every day. Yeah, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> but like that's a lot. But that's what people yeah. pay thousands of dollars yeah. a month for. And if you pay that kind of money for it, you can get that kind of service. If you establish that kind of reputation, you could dive into it that much. I'm sure when Eric Helms, Eric uh, coaches Bryce Lewis, right? Pretty sure. Uh, I don't. I can't remember if he told us that. Yeah, he did when he was on the podcast. I'm virtually certain that Bryce saw him out years ago. Yeah, it is Bryce. I Lewis. believe so. Yeah. And and so Eric has been working with Bryce Lewis for a very long time, and Bryce is a highly accomplished. I just saw Bryce He's a like, world champion. Yeah. Well, when I first started powerlifting, Bryce was 30 pounds smaller than me and I was 200 pounds and now I just saw him yesterday he's massive like he's bigger than all of us and yeah so and Helms has been behind that stuff for years and you know you don't think that Helms is not like his absolute champion and Helms is doing high quality work with everybody he's working with you don't think that like they're dealing with every little thing when Bryce needs it that that's getting done with that high level of coaching absolutely Oh, for sure now, Bryce is also probably someone who's fairly independent but at the same time I'm sure that whatever he needs is happening in that coaching arrangement. Oh, as, absolutely. I suppose for trainers who are listening to this, you know, there's a, there's a lot of depth to this. I still believe go the extra mile with your clientele. You want to give them everything possible. You're not going to get a lot of clients. I think are going to ask more of you than they're going to abuse your time. If that makes sense. No. And I don't think it's, it, it's really important not to discount yourself in your, your training rates. I hate seeing trainers do that. Like, Every once in a while, I'll get emails, and the first question someone asks is, is how much is my hourly rate? And of course, I already know that's an uphill battle to convince that person to come and talk to me, so I'll invite them to come in in person. I will tell them how much I charge, and I'll always try to make sure I remind them that, you know, there's a lot of value in what I do, but, you know, if I get a chance to sit in front of you, you'll get to see that. If someone's shopping on price, like you said, you're going to find far cheaper trainers than me. You can go on yeah. to Gigi and find someone who will show up at your door. And by the way, train you in your home for 40 bucks an hour. Now, here's my thoughts on that. Someone who's charging 40 bucks an hour, you're, uh, that's kind of scary. And if someone has a freedom, the ability to actually travel to your home Man, and coach sounds... you, they're not necessarily very busy. Perhaps this isn't a trainer who's that skilled or, or high quality. Perhaps is also a sex offender. I was going to say, like, yeah. that sounds like, like your place is getting cased. Well, I, like, I, I do. You're going to get robbed I, I, I next been, month. I haven't been able to substantiate this, but I do have a client who claims that there is a personal trainer somewhere in the city who will show up at your house and train you while he is naked. <laughs> and that is a little odd to me. I don't know. Uh, to each their own. But quite rich. I've heard that exists, uh, but I don't know who this individual is. So <laughs> if someone actually out there knows this to be factual, you can send me a message and confirm it. I think we should go on Craigslist right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, finish this, I'll finish that point with this. And this is a phrase I've heard before. If you think... Paying for a good trainer is expensive. Wait till you spend some time with a bad trainer and what could happen there. So well, that, yeah, that's that that delayed, delayed cost for sure. I mean, you, you, I'll use myself as an example. So people will ask me, you know, how much do I train? How much do I charge for monthly coaching? And my rates are very reasonable. I charge one twenty-five Canadian a month. The reason I do that, it isn't my first source of income, and I cherry pick my clients. So I'm only going to work with you if I want to, and I'm totally fine with that. If someone messages me and asks me for in-person, 
and they want me to do an assessment with them. Well, my rates are $200 an hour yeah. because I know what I'm worth. And if you're shopping on cost, you're probably not someone who's going to benefit from the expertise that I have. And that's fine. It, what you get out of the hour is up to you. So if you're, if you're shopping on price, you're going to get what you're willing to pay for. And that, that's, that's, that's it. This, so this is, this is where like we do podcasts last second. So we have basically, what does Andrew want to ask the powerlifter about? <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the, and it's kind of funny because he's been, he, you've been kind of holding some of these questions for a while. So bodybuilders suck compared to powerlifters. You got that out of the way. Um, sorry, bodybuilders. But what positives do you see in the surge of popularity in powerlifting? And what do you think of coaches who try to turn everyone into a competitive powerlifter? Which that is totally, I know you want the answer to that one. Well, that's, that's a pet peeve. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I, I this is Andrew's pet that, peeve episode. There's one dude that does this crap that drives me fucking crazy, and I'll tell a little bit about it being yeah. first. So, I mean, <laughs> the biggest positive for me that I see in the surge of powerlifting, and I'm going to lump all strength sports in that together, yeah. is there are more barbells in more people's hands than ever before, especially females. And I think that is incredible. I think the barbell is one of the most powerful tools, not only for health enhancement, but for life enhancement. Um, overload. Overload, yeah. I mean, lifting weights can teach you so much more about yourself than any other uh, physical endeavor. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with CrossFit's popularity. Yeah, absolutely. And fully, I, I, I'm a big CrossFit uh, you have to in be. that regard. I have to be because my wife is... Uh, high-level crossfitter <laughs> but um that to me the amount of barbells in people's hands the amount of people we see in, in in the gym lifting weights is the best part about the rise in powerlifting um what do i think about coaches who turn everyone into competitive powerlifters i think that they aren't coaches uh, if the barbell is your only means to accomplish a physique enhancement or a health enhancement then you seriously have an empty toolbox and uh you are missing in a lot of areas that you could be capitalizing on. Uh, I'll use myself as an example again. Like when I stop competing in powerlifting and I officially say, you know, I'm not going to lift anymore competitively, I will never squat with a straight bar. I will never bench press on a flat bench and I will never deadlift with a straight bar. There's no point. There's no point to limit myself to three lifts. And if you are someone who you know what? I'm going to slow down a little bit. If you are someone who only has those tools available to you from a from a, an intellectual standpoint, you need to go back to the books. If you're using competition powerlifting as a way to challenge your clients mentally, to push them to a new level, to get some type of extra personal growth from them, then by all means, if they're on board, go ahead. But if you're forcing the issue for your own personal you know, agenda then there's a problem. I've observed some of that. I mean, again, it's pet peeve. I won't try. I'm not going to hint at well, individual you that you, the, the, the thing is, but, you know enough people that like you, yeah. you're, it's a broad stroke because I, so, I know a few people. I'm there, sure you know a few yeah, people. There, sure. There's an individual who, what we see is, is coaches a lot of women mm -hmm. and a lot of those women are in older age categories. And then of course there's a variety of weight categories. So what do we have, you know, gold men, medals, men in the 220 <laughs> weight class is a pretty saturated weight class, right? No, uh, yeah. Whereas, you know, 47-year-old woman who's, uh, you know, 175 pounds, I'm guessing that there's probably not a lot of crazy records in some of these things. 
So, and certainly in any given competition, there might only be one or two people in that category. Mm -hmm. And you get this jackass who's bragging about all the medals he's winning. <laughs> I don't uh, even know what you're talking about. What? I know that's like, if you like want to collect medals, that's the way to well, do it. Go it, find I, a class. I'll, I'll, hit, like I'll, I'll hit and... something here no, that, uh, that if anyone knows this might give it away. But from what I understand, he bragged about winning a gold medal in a bench press competition somewhere in his age and weight category. And there was only one other person in that other man in that category actually didn't have one leg so this is a kind of shit that and of course these details get left out but this is a self-aggrandizing narcissistic individual who uses people to again as you said further his own agenda to continue to bring people into do this sort of thing one of my major concerns is if you're what you think, yeah. if your philosophy is to force everyone into doing what you're interested in number one you're not serving your clients best interests right. and you are potentially risking a lot of people uh, getting seriously hurt, especially if you're really forcing people to com start competing quickly. Their body has, if you're taking women in their 40s and 50s, they can really progress really rapidly. They're actually a mm -hmm. great uh, population to get lifting weights. But at the same time, if you're taking them within the space of under a year, to competition doing maximal loading with these people, well, I'm not convinced that their tissue, their joints, are prepared, have had the time to adapt to those kind of stresses. So I think the injury potential there is pretty high. I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I would agree. The other thing too is when you're training general population, I think there's a lot to be said for the anthropometrics of a person and their ability to tolerate stress under load. So you look at the people who are the best at powerlifting. They are short. They have short femurs. They have longer torsos, longer arms. That's not the average person. No. Um, Plus, the, if you take that age category, you're going to have a lifetime of imbalances, a lifetime of injury injury potential, a lifetime of you know history of injury or, or athletic history. It might be sedentary. It might be sedentary. So that that resilience under load hasn't been established. So there is a huge risk there. And, and again, I'll return to if the goal is to make the person healthier, I think the barbell is a tool. It's not, it, it's not, you're not running around and you only have a hammer in your toolbox. You should have a full toolbox. Um, so, I mean, if the person wants to compete, by all means, if, if competing is a way for you to say, you know, you need to push yourself outside of your comfort zone, this is a great way for you to do it, by all means go ahead as long as the client is the one steering the ship. But your job is to make that person healthier and the, the better coach is going to be able to do that in a multitude of ways. Well, I think that it comes down to, like you said, they're not even a coach. Like if you don't understand yeah. the intention behind, like if the intention behind powerlifting with your client is just because you want to have powerlifters, I don't think you fully understand the whole process or even the tools that are available because yeah. to, to be a coach, you have to have the tools and you have to understand the intention behind the tools. Then you have to actually have intention using the tools Absolutely. and that there's gets an, lost. There's an entirely opposite end of the spectrum and I've seen a lot of this too where trainers who are uncomfortable with using barbells so they actually don't spend any time with these really useful you know, that's it's a whole so basic that's a whole conversation though behind trainers who don't train they anyways don't have the breadth of skill and comfort with these things so therefore they're not even using something that I think is fairly basic but there's also another group that they they're kind of they have this Hello? graduated idea of <laughs> when it's appropriate to give people certain things 
and they won't graduate people to barbells until they've checked off a lot of boxes I think are fairly arbitrary. So you may have someone who won't let a client touch a barbell for six months. I, I would rather have that though. Because at least they have it. At I least they understand. I think that's model. really excessive. The vast majority of the clients I work with will touch a barbell within their first workout. It's just whether or not it's appropriate to their capabilities. Not everybody's barbell squatting by any means, but that maybe not every workout, but within at least a few, a couple of weeks, almost everyone is touching a barbell in some sense. To get them comfortable with it, it's just going to be load appropriate to the person that you assess them individually. Yeah, when, so the vast majority of the people that I see now are lifters, just from the, the well, you squat 800 pounds, they're going to come to you yeah. for this. <laughs> so I mean, I would put a barbell in their hands just to see how it looks. Um, but when I was dealing with athletes, yeah, I forgot you. I'm yeah. Sorry, we talked about it, but you were you were in college. Yeah, so like I was in the collegiate athletics realm, you know, Division One, Division One A. When I got to South Florida, they were ranked fourth in the nation. Yeah, um, they were a very proficient team from a lifting standpoint. Like, you know, we were doing Olympic lifting, we were, we were squatting heavy, overhead pressing, deadlifting, all those things. Um, but working with, say, for example, the field hockey team at Robert Morris University. Those are girls that need to be very strong in the lower body, yeah. but they're not proficient enough at the movement pattern to allow them to squat heavy with the bar on the back. So what did I do? Well, I maxed out the potential on the goblet squat. So my rule for the goblet squat is you can goblet squat until you can't hold the dumbbell up anymore. <laughs> and then we'll put you a barbell on your shoulders and you're going to front squat. Most of them didn't need to put the bar on their back to maximize their strength for performance in the sport past the front squat because of all you know, the torso stability it teaches, the proprioception it teaches, um, that anterior load tolerance, especially with a field hockey player yeah, where the posture is very much leaned forward. So the front squat for us was as far as we needed to get. We didn't really need to back squat much. Well, and now, how long ago was that? Because like the safety squat bar probably had a, well, not we, a resurgence, but it started coming in after. We now. had three of them. So it wasn't enough yeah. to actually run a full team through. And that's, you know, at Robert Morris, it was a one double A school. We yeah. had a, I think our weight room was 1200 square feet. It was, you know, bare bones. Yeah. Um, when I was at the university of Tampa, a bigger weight room, it's a division two school, but it's a private institution. So we had plenty of tools at our disposal, but had I had a safety squat bar? Yeah. I might've used it, especially once they've maximized that front well, squat. And it, it just almost seems like even with the sports training world a lot of stuff is coming into that equation now it's like almost like they're they're not behind but a lot of them have their systems and to integrate some of the new stuff is a process especially with people coming in and out yeah it's becoming less so that as you know i'm on the outside now so i feel almost unequipped to speak on behalf of them yeah Um, but i'll speak carefully here so i mean i've worked with coaches that have specific systems and i've worked with coaches that are very much a let's try things yeah. and let's have fun. Like Todd Hammer, who I was with at Robert Morris, was very much a, I want to be on the cutting edge and I want to try different things with my athletes, see what That's sticks true. because it's novel, it's fun, it's safe, and we're going to get an, a, a response from the athlete. Joel Seedman is kind of of that same sort yep. of mindset where he is crazy novel with his stuff. So. Yeah, and, and there is a ton of benefits to that, namely the buy-in you're going to get from the athlete saying, it's true. Man, my coach is on the leading edge and this is new stuff. I'm totally down to put my full effort into this. But there are coaches that run a system. You look at uh, 
I'll use Joe Ken as an example. So Joe runs a tier system. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Joe has been on the leading edge of strength and conditioning for decades. He's with the Carolina Panthers right now. He has managed to formulate a system in which he integrates those novel things in a manner that's, that fits within his concept of training. That, to me, is the epitome yeah. of a professional who is able to distill down these novel concepts, assimilate it into his own philosophy, and apply it with intent. Why well, critically think? I think exactly. that, that's, yeah. that's missing. So yeah. with, this can get to the discussion about models. Is like a lot of people follow other people's models without critically thinking that model and then integrating it their own thing. Because yeah. if you can't think your way through this stuff, then are you a coach or are you following a model? I yeah. Think. There's a lot of really good examples of people who do just what you described. I recently got to meet Robert Lingle, and we'll work on getting him on the podcast in the near future. I don't know if you know who Robert is. Yeah. Robert's a, a trainer in the U.S., and he's great credentials, but he's regarded as the leading authority on training older populations. Cool. So, and he's got some really great systemized stuff that is based on his education, his experience working with these people. Robert's 38 and he can relate to where these people are because he's had like three hip replacements and he had a lung almost entirely removed from cancer and stuff like this. You look at him, you wouldn't know, but this guy has been broken up. He was a hammer thrower. So there's a lot of dysfunctional stuff that he tells a story about and how really, really screwed up his hips due to not training properly at a very young age, uh, drawing. So, but he's a really humble guy, really down to earth guy, but he's just built some beautiful stuff. So it's really off topic from, this, this episode is really about powerlifting, I guess, but we want to apply it across. Well, it's about trashing the people you want. Well, yeah. Of course. <laughs> but uh, Robert's an example. So he's just built, built some really great stuff. And if any any of the trainers listening uh, are interested in like stuff about older populations, like Robert's stuff is world class. And then go back to athletes. I think what Chrissy Sports Performance does yep. is one of the best but, systems. And Mike Oils is stuff. They're not a FRC guy or whatever, PRI, DNS, whatever the fuck thing that is. They're not solely that. It comes down to, like I've mentioned it a couple times already, the tools available in your yeah. toolbox. So the more full your toolbox is, the more appropriately you're going to be able to train um, the different types of populations that come through your your gym, your inbox, whatever it may have. So I get a lot of questions about continuing education simply because I, I have you know, grad degrees and, and I've done quite a, a bit of continuing education. Um, and my response is always, you know, I'll get questions like, hey, do you recommend reading the Juggernaut Method or 531 uh, or the West Side Book of Methods? And I'm like, yeah, those are great books. But what you need to do after you read those books is read the books that they read yeah. to develop those systems. So if you want to learn more about Westside, why don't you read Science and Practice of Strength Training by Zatsyorsky and Super Training. And don't read that. Right. Well, <laughs> it's just an example. But, um, Actually, you know what? Go, it's, go it's look a it up. A, it's a bit of a thick read, for lack of a better word. You know, two C's thick. Um, but that's, that's where it comes down to is those people put out books and methods based on their interpretation of the books they've read. So what you need to do in order to understand their systems is read the books that they read to develop those systems. And I guarantee that if I read a book, Dean reads a book, Andrew reads a book, we're all going to have different interpretations of how that fits into our own training philosophies. And that's why, that's why I truly believe that training, coaching, lifting is as much art as it is science. There is a beautiful symphony that happens when your brain assimilates information and puts it on paper because it's only going to make sense to you. 
But the way you implement that piece of paper into a coaching program is what makes it worth the money that you charge. You'll have a far more robust understanding of principles behind Absolutely. it, not just a <laughs> rote memorization of here's how this should But it's that idea of like, you know, people asking you, what book should I read? And the intention behind it is like, well, what can I go get out of it? And it's like, well, if you're looking to get their system, like, sure. But it's like the other stuff. If you're coming into it with like, what can I pull out and assimilate and then dive deeper down? You'll just have a, I don't know, that's just my bias. But like you'll have a better understanding of where you want to go because if you're just trying to collect, we've talked about this before, collect certifications or collect methods. We've talked about yeah. this before, you and I. Yeah. You know, I remember when you were making your decision whether to step out mm -hmm. of your your teaching role. Yeah. And you're like, you know, what certification should I get? And I I, I very much remember saying, well, it's not so much the certifications you you get; it's the understanding of those principles that is most important. The letters give you some form of credibility, but it's how you apply them that makes the most sense. Well, and, if you believe in care at this in, point in terms of the end user who wants to coach with you, um, what your actual credentials well, and are. Really and really doesn't really don't success at that at this point. Get because be, because yeah. there's so many avenues for that. Like, at this point, continuing education is great. Like it's in a really good spot, but there's so many things that you can take which is also a bad thing. Right. It's not bad, but it's just like, if your intention is to start collecting stuff, there's just way too much. So you almost have to have a better understanding of your principles and your models so that you can take those things and have better direction. Cause I think a lot of people are aimlessly just collecting stuff and that that's a process that's, that's cool, but like it has to go somewhere. Yeah. You get that hummingbird coach, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> one month they're a powerlifting coach. The next yeah. month they're a kettlebell coach. The next month they're an FRC coach. And, uh, you know, the best guys do a little bit, the best guys and girls do a little bit of everything and it fits within their own model. Well, and, and I've even fallen victim to that, at least, at least at the very beginning, but then you start talking to the people and you start seeing, but it, I mean, that rabbit hole can be pretty, oh, yeah. like you could, you could find new certifications like every, like at this point, every year's new stuff is coming out. That's because there's money. We, it, that's what I mean. Like, just because there's more people in the training industry and like continuing education is one of those things where we've been told it's valuable, but it can also be very in like not valuable because well, health and wellness is a one trillion dollar right. industry. Because for a lot of people, it roadblocks them. Like if you take the next best thing and that's, you're going all in on that. The second they go all in on like a methodology, like you basically stop progressing. And I think a lot of people do get on that because it costs a lot of money. Like FRC, I think like if you take, they have like five or six things. Anyways, you're 10 grand deep into that. Mm. And it's, what's that? That's not some cost theory. It's like, mm. I put so much money into it to like not do that would mean that it's been worthless. Mm, good point. Is that right? Let's, I'm going to hijack this because I actually want to take that and make this all in concept and steer it back to the discussion we had before we started about younger powerlifters and athletes and what your thoughts are now because we're seeing a lot more young people, a lot more specialization. We know that specialization with other types of athletes yeah, is a problem. So what are your thoughts on the long-term implications of an injury potential of young powerlifters and highly specialized um, training? Uh, I'm not a fan. Um, my training philosophy in general uh, implements a lot of variation into it. Um, the reason that I think most people gravitate towards that early specialization in powerlifting is because of the neurological yeah. improvements that they can make really quickly. So if you're touching a lift multiple times during the week, you're getting multiple times to practice that movement pattern, the movement pattern becomes more efficient, you become stronger simply via 
getting more efficient in your movement patterns. To a point, it works ex well. With the beginner, it works, it works extremely well. It, with every, at, at all times, it's going to work better. The problem is, is once you get to a certain point that you're able to tolerate larger loads within those patterns, you have breakdown. Yeah. You have technique breakdown. You have you know tissue breakdown. Your tissues need to recover just as much as your central nervous system needs to recover. Um, you're going to develop imbalances because these competition lifts are not full range of motion through the joints. Um, so you're going to get you know movement restrictions and things of that nature. So what you see is these these young lifters that progress at a very very high rate. And an example is like junior lifters. So junior lifters, you'll see these crazy totals from junior lifters, and then they never do anything. Yeah, they just phase out. Category. Yep. They either burn out because they, from a mental perspective, they just don't enjoy it anymore, or they burn out because their bodies break down and they don't want to do it anymore. When we just literally had this discussion with Christian Thibodeau, and it was in regards to hockey, but you see a lot of kids that didn't, that specialized way too early, they didn't do anything, like the people that were being successful were in their mid-20s for other sports, because they, and that played multiple different sports. So the early specialization model is almost been proven at this point that doesn't work, but it's the system that incentivizes the early specialization because yeah. as a junior, you can be world-class if you get those neurological changes and you do it so quick. And it's very enticing to do it, that. It comes from two places, it, especially not so much powerlifting because you don't see parents pushing kids into powerlifting very often. <laughs> yeah. But well, when it comes to hockey and, and football or whatever, you have, you, have baseball, you have parents who want to throw everything possible at their kids in order to give them what they think is the opportunity to reach the pro level. And then you have people, uh, coaches, people who are selling, uh, showcasing these kids or whatever, making money off it. They're a big problem because they are marketing and selling these things as the way to get your kid further ahead. Uh, I can't count the number of famous examples of, and these are anecdotes, but they're still valid. Uh, Michael Jordan is a good one. And so is Wayne Gretzky, where they put down their main sport and they played other sports. I mean, People don't usually forget that Michael Jordan actually took a, a stab at pro baseball. Mm -hmm. He got the double A. Everyone remembers that. It was in Space Jam. Doesn't quite. <laughs> Everyone yeah. Well, anyone who's that old, right? But we just now have this kid, <laughs> Kyler Murray, who is uh, an Oakland A's prospect. Yeah. And signed a, a, mil, mil, a multi-million dollar deal only to turn around and declare for the NFL draft. Sign a huge contract. Get picked first overall. And there's lots of examples of guys who won the Charlie Ward was a basketball player who won the Heisman yeah. and played for the Knicks instead. Uh, Bo Jackson is one of my favorite all-time people now. Again, Bo, degenerative hip condition, you got to wonder. But he's one of the best pure athletes of all time. Deion Sanders. Well, this list goes on and on. Well, in, in like mainstream sports, I think the best example is like my, uh, the Little League World Series. Hmm. Only 3% of those kids ever go to play. Really? I didn't even know that. Yeah, it's like super small. I don't know if 3% is the exact number. But I do remember reading that it was it was less than five percent of those kids go on to play higher levels. Of Have you ever looked at any of the statistics with powerlifting? Because like I can name a few, like even like look at Pete Rubish, <laughs> like and he's back into it now, but like he got destroyed in his mid twenties. Well, you see a lot of a lot of those people, and I mean, it, there's a lot of factors that play into that. But Pete wasn't necessarily an early specialization That's true. guy. He was still like six. Okay, maybe not that early. I mean, people remember him deadlifting in the basement yeah. beside the washing machines. But uh, like, I'm I'm talking, and it become it's become very popular in the IPF. Yeah. Um, so you see a lot more juniors there. You know, to do these daily undulating periodization programs where you squat, bench, and deadlift multiple times a week. Yeah. And that's great because you're going to get really good at squatting, benching, and deadlifting. Yeah. Unfortunately, again, you come back to tissue resilience. You come back 
to uh, movement imbalances, and some lifters can tolerate those high frequency demands. Yeah. Um, but the anthropometrics of a lifter who can tolerate those loads in those positions, yeah. those are the kids that you see progress further on. Yeah. And I mean, powerlifting is a sport where there's no money in it. There's a lot of invested money that, yeah. you know, if you want to go to Worlds as a junior, a couple thousand dollars for the plane ticket, the hotel, coach, coach, all that stuff, you got to pay for it. Um, maybe the parents are paying for it. Maybe it's GoFundMe. Um, <laughs> you know, that's a, we can get into that and that's another topic, but I mean, it, it's, uh, from a purely training perspective, there are a lot of flaws in that system. I think the, the lifters that I've taken over from daily undulating periodization programs have seen incredible amounts of, of growth in their, in their lifting potential simply by doing less of the competition movements. Once you learn how to squat bench and deadlift, that the drive's there. That's the time where you should stop squatting, bench pressing, and deadlifting yeah. exclusively. Learn the movements, get proficient at them, and then use other movements to build your potential. Well, well even this is like, well, I was going to say like, um, even with the neurological thing, like I haven't squatted at all really, but even I haven't really even sumo deadlifted, but like it takes maybe like three weeks to get proficient at it now yep. because the drive, like the ner- like I've already done it. A and lot. So, I don't know. I was saying like, I've already got good at it. I didn't get better until I started doing other shit. Just due to the neural fatigue of deadlifting, a lot of really good deadlifters don't deadlift very much. Yep. They actually go through entire training phases where they don't What's deadlift a, a bar from the ground at all. My best train, my best deadlift training, like I'm not built to deadlift. No. Deadlift beats me up really badly. Um, you know, I have short arms, long torso. So, I mean, my best deadlifting has been done when I only deadlift from the floor every third week. There are a lot of ways to build your deadlift by not deadlifting from the floor. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it comes back to tools, right? What do you think the solution is? Like, not even solution. I mean, we're, we're obviously saying that there's a problem, and I don't know if that there necessarily is, but what's a better way of doing it for more people? Because I think that you're right. Some people that are juniors that can handle it, it's like the Russian system. If you just fucking pound them with CNS and, and max lifts, they can do that all, all fucking year. But there's other people that it can't handle. So what's a better holistic model, I guess, to kind of push these lifters basically into their 20s without dropping out because that's what I'm seeing it's, even at the meet yesterday there was yeah. tons of juniors that were fucking smoking it and I hope cross my fingers that they're going to last that long but I know what they're doing they're doing that undulating they're benching fucking three times a week squatting three times a week so the solution is well first of all you got to look at you know the philosophies that developed the training programs where you're squatting bench pressing deadlifting multiple times a week those training philosophies were developed to weed out yeah. those who could not tolerate them. <laughs> they only want to train the people who can survive the system because those are the genetic outliers. Yeah. So what is my solution to that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's variety. I mean, once you get good, so with my lifters, if I have a beginner lifter, and I do have beginner lifters, they squat, they bench press, and they deadlift. They might do them twice a week. Sometimes three, but it's never the same variation of the same lift three times in the week. And we progress it in an undulating manner. I don't follow a, a very linear progression. In, in in the macro scale, it is linear, yeah. but from a, each each microphase or macro cycle, whatever you want to call it, there's so many goddamn names for them now. Blocks. Blocks. Whatever. Forty block. Yeah. Um, each portion of training uh, undulates to a certain extent. We 
implement variation to address certain weaknesses. As we approach the meet, the training gets more specific. The volume drops down as the weights go up. And these are all very, very basic training methodologies and principles. It's not rocket surgery. <laughs> rocket appliances. Rocket, it's not rocket appliances. Okay. I wanted to grab onto something you said because actually funny, I wrote it down just before you actually said it. And it's the importance of understanding survivorship bias in genetics. And I'm actually writing something. We'll see if it, it turns out to be something I can publish somewhere. And it's understanding how a lot of times what you're seeing at the high levels of powerlifting, body, bodybuilding is terrible for this stuff. Uh, the practices and the behaviors, the anecdotal things that bodybuilders will say in particular, be very, very careful with listening to their advice or, or following what they're doing. You are dealing with people who, by the very definition of it, are the genetic elite. You're dealing with people who are using extremely high levels of drugs. And you are seeing the people who survived the process. You do not see all the bodies along the road that got broken, the people that couldn't handle the stresses. So it really is a process of filtering out the people who can tolerate this and then they're successful. I often use Branch Warren as an example for bodybuilders. Uh, Branch is a genetic anomaly. He's he's a freak show. He's been very, very successful. He's a white guy. He's white. The white guy. Well, yeah, I think he's the white guy that just like Branch trains so hard. Branch trains like an idiot. Oh, yeah. And, and I will I, say I, I it straight know. up. Branch does not know what strict form looks like. Everything is swinging and swaying around far too heavy weight that he can't control. And Branch is also somebody who has a litany of injuries in his career to the point where he just wasn't. He's gonna fall off the horse. I don't yeah, know. I don't know about that, but he's had torn biceps and triceps and all kinds of. He did fall off the horse, and that's they, how he hurt him. So that's how he got out of the well, the year. The year that's that's that just that now that's a coincidence unrelated all this stuff. But it's really important just to be really careful with the the advice of these top people because survivorship bias is a real thing. You just need to be able to realize that there's just so much stuff you're not seeing. People got hurt along the way, so. And there are a multitude of ways to improve your resilience while still accomplishing the same task. Yeah. What I said earlier about you know higher frequency training. I have squatted over 800 pounds. I did that while squatting three times a week. But I never low bar competition squatted three times a week. I would high bar, I would front squat, and I would safety bar squat. And my guess is you're dropping down the training volume on your other lifts when you're pushing that. Exactly. Well, that was the only time I benched 440 was benching three times a week. Yeah. And I mean... I dropped everything else. We dropped everything else. So you were... I think the only deadlift thing you were doing was a trap bar. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the other thing, is systemic fatigue. Yeah. When you push a lift as hard as you can push it, the other lifts need to back off. If you're trying to push all three lifts at the same time, it gets a little bit more nuanced in how you're able to manage the total fatigue of the individual. You'll often notice at the beginning when there's, you know, quote unquote newbie gains, you'll get people who progress their squat bench deadlift yeah. at the same time and, and they're, they're doing great. And then as you get more advanced, you'll see those lifters who, oh, the squat's going great. So they got to back off the deadlift or the deadlift feels like garbage, but their bench press is going great. What's your whole career? That's yeah, exactly. So, I mean, you end up, pushing one lift at a time or figuring out a way that you can manage the volume and intensity in a way where all three lifts can come up together. The key is, can you stay healthy enough for that to come to fruition and for you to hit the platform? If you're relying on a training philosophy meant to weed out genetically 
you know, genetically yeah. gifted people, you're really not going to get very far because chances are, chances are you're not a genetically gifted person because if you were, you'd know. <laughs> well, that's what like, I guess like the hard part is it's hard to evaluate that as a lifter because I can even remember back to when I was getting into it. I had pretty good influences, but like, I want to say in my early twenties, I would try everything. But I didn't know what was working or not, just because I would go, the strongest guy, let's listen to what he says, because he knows something. And I'm not saying that the strongest guys don't know stuff, but again, they're the survivors where, like, I can't train like Larry Wheels and be Larry Wheels. I can't. You can't, you can't bench press 500 for 12? <laughs> and, like, he sells programs. Then he has Larry Wheels, but it's like... <laughs> 1999 Lincoln Bio? <laughs> like, exactly. But, like, I think that that's more attractive than what you're saying. I, for most people when they're evaluating. Well, yeah, because what I'm saying isn't fancy. No. It's not It's not sexy. You know, uh, steady progress over time doesn't get people hard. No, and it, 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 well, <laughs> I, I, well, and I would say even those methods that we are talking about to weed people out is like, just go look at some of the lifters. Like, their totals don't change over the years. But they're trying, they're putting on an insane amount of volume and a lot of them get hurt. But like I guess it's hard to evaluate because you have to go look at them on Instagram. Well, here's the thing. And that's another thing. Instagram doesn't showcase that. Here's the other thing too. Is if you're taking advice from the top lifters, you're taking what they're doing now. Yeah. If you want to be them now, you need to do what they did 10 years ago to get to where they are now. You look at a lifter like Yuri Belkin. Yuri trains three days a week. He squat. He has two yeah. squat bench days and he has a deadlift day. Yeah. He trains three times a week and he only squats, benches, and deadlifts. That's all he does. Why? Because five years ago, 10 years ago, he put in the work to get to the point where he had a base to do that. You know, if you as a young lifter only squatted, benched and deadlifted, you would get strong to a point. Yeah. Right now, all he's trying to do is display his maximum well, strength. And you see that it's almost like the opposite end. Yep. Like a lot of the, I'm not going to say a lot of the younger lifters, I'm trashing everyone. But a lot of people use the lifts and the neurological drive to get those gains at the beginning, but they don't get the payoff on the end. Where like, we'll even use bodybuilders for example. So a lot of the guys that turn bodybuilder powerlifter, they built that base and they just narrowed it down on the CNS. Yeah. Um, you, you, that base of the pyramid needs yeah. work. The base of the pyramid is not squatting, benching, and No. It's functional patterns. It is core work, it is hypertrophy, it is work capacity, volume, yeah. you know, you can build those things with a barbell, but I wouldn't advise that you do it with competition movements yeah. just because of the strain that it puts on the system. The underlying thing that seems to keep happening in this episode, and I really want to emphasize it for when it comes to powerlifters, athletes especially, but even general population, is the concept of, of avoiding injury. Minimizing your downtime, the lost training time due to injury, obviously serious injuries are going to have much greater implications. It is really about staying alive during your lifting career to be able to enjoy a long lifting career. Guess what? Your graphic's going to be your face on John Travolta. It's just going to happen. Oh, so that's be sweet. It's going to okay, work. Before, okay, because we got, we got about 10 more minutes. Uh, I've, got, I've got 10 minutes. You guys actually should probably no, keep going. I was going to say, you guys can have fun. So. Um, talk about the app. So this is kind of cool because we've had got, like we've had pretty much the experts in HRV stuff. And this is not HRV, which is what I want 
kind of to talk about, but um, you recently launched at MetriLife. MetriLife. Yeah. MetriLife. Yeah. Nice. Like tell, metrics life. Yeah. Tell us what it's about and where do you see the technology changing the end user fitness experience? Because this is different than a lot of the stuff that we've talked about a few times and I think it's pretty cool. Absolutely. So uh, MetriLife is an app that uh, myself and my business partner, Jane Nira, have been working on for about five years now. Uh, we launched a month ago. And uh, the premise of the app is it is trying to teach people how their daily behaviors affect their life and how to modify those behaviors over time for improved health and performance in mind and body. And that last piece is to us is the most important. We are, we are the only app on the market right now that directly links physical health and mental health and then allows the user to directly measure the strength of that relationship between those two factors. So the biggest piece that I would that we're trying to hit home in this in our initial launches, we don't have integration with wearable devices right now. Yeah. We do plan on having it in the future, but the reason we strategically left it out is because we want to teach people that how they feel is most important. Yeah. So if if we're gonna jump in right away and talk about HRV, talk about sleep trackers and things like yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. There is an innate bias in the data you're being presented. So we'll use HRV first. So HRV, the devices that are worn are typically on the finger or the wrist. Right there, there's a bias because that isn't your, your heart rate variability, that's your pulse rate variability. Pulse rate variability has a, a no correlation to health markers. Heart rate variability does. So they have a predictive algorithm to try and equate pulse rate with heart rate. Right there, you have error. Most of the devices. It's Most of the shit. devices, exactly. So then you look at sleep tracking. Well, usually they use uh, a function of heart rate and accelerometry to measure your heart rate and how much you're moving. So right there, there's, an, a, there's a, um, a prediction, error. Anytime there's prediction, there is error. Then there is an overestimation of time spent to sleep and less than 40% accuracy measuring your sleep stages as compared to clinical devices. Mm -hmm. So the information that you're getting from these devices is riddled with error and very, very low accuracy. Does it provide you with meaningful information? Absolutely. But if I wake up in the morning and I feel groggy and lethargic, it really doesn't matter what my HRV is. It matters that I feel poorly. Over time, what you can do is try to use the HRV or the heart or the heart rate monitoring or the sleep tracking as a way to validate how you're feeling yeah. as like a second guess type thing. But as, a, as, a, as an individual, I need to learn that how I feel is important. Yeah. Um, with MetriLife, you're tracking subjective and objective measures, things like you know the length of, of sleep, the quality of your sleep. Subjectively, how do you feel that you slept? Uh, your nutrition quality, your stress level, your libido, things that we should all as people be tracking at the same time. And those 10 values are what we call our wellness score. Yeah. And once you fill out your metrics, you input your questions, you're provided with a wellness score. You can track that over time. There's also a mental health score, which evaluates your mental health based on the five domains identified by the Canadian Association of Mental Health, yeah. or the Canadian Mental Health Association, sorry. Uh, who we are working with. And that score, uh, you answer five questions per day. Those questions rotate every day for a month. So you never answer the same questions twice. And again, you can track that over time. Well, and the reason why I like it is because it's essentially the stuff that we would do as coaches. Like we're questioning clients and blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah. And then it kind of sparks them to think, well, why is he asking me these things? And this is pretty much that but it kind of builds awareness around these things. Cause that's the big thing is like, well, why is asking right. me this? And then they're going to think about it. 
which is why the HRV works because they're questioning, hey, did my recovery work because of this hot shower last night or this and that. So that's where it's useful. But in terms of actual accuracy, it's not with subjective stuff like you're talking yep. about. Um, they have to actually think. Right. And, and to Whoop's credit, and we use Whoop as an example, yeah. Whoop, they ask subjective questions, which is great because yeah. it provides additional validity. Uh, where we feel that our technology is superior is that development of self-awareness. Yeah. The, the simple act of tracking your daily metrics will make you aware of their impact on your life. Mm -hmm. Not to mention we provide scores. We also provide alerts along the way with, with uh, concrete, actionable directions on how to improve your scores. And visuals is the cool one. Yeah, the visuals is, is, is my, my favorite part. I, I have two favorite parts of the app. One is the review that allows you to overlay any of the metrics that you've answered over time yeah. with one another. So it'll actually tell you how strong the relationships are between those metrics. Um, I posted one on my Instagram the other day, uh, which was sleep duration, focus, and appetite. And it was correlating at like 85%. Right. Which is just validating like a lot of the stuff we know. But it's kind of interesting because like you're basically the annoying person that's gonna ask you the questions that need to be asked. You know right. what I mean? Exactly. But, like, exactly. And and it's it's an intriguing because if you track the same metrics, yeah. your relationship would not be the same as mine. No. So it really shows the user this is your life. This is how your life is impacting your outcomes. Now, how do you improve your behaviors? Well, we provide you cues for that. The other really important piece to the app is the journal. Mm -hmm. um, you're allowed to input a journal note of, of whatever length that you want to conceptualize why you answered your questions the way that you answered them. And that's important because there might be a meaningful event that day. I use it just to get my thoughts out of my head. Yeah. And... Um, and that's been really, really important for me. Well, we have it even on Strong View, so we do nutrition, coaching, and everything. Anyways, long story short is it will ask questions like that. Like, and they'll have to subjectively score, and then there's like a notes section, and then you can mm -hmm. kind of see. But just, it's not even the fact that it's there, it's the act of doing the mm -hmm. thing, and then they come to their own conclusions. So people can come to their own conclusions based on something that has, like, you don't have to be the one that, to let them know, like, hey, when you do this, this is fucked. They see that it's fucked. Mm -hmm. the, the app is basically the asshole in the equation. Yeah, the other cool piece is... It's a horrible is, way of saying it, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, it's, you know, it's holding up a mirror to you and saying, this is, it's a mirror. this is really what's going on. Um, the other piece is, if you are working with a coach, Metri Life provides you with a weekly report with, all, with your weekly average data and a summary of how it was going. Also, all your journal notes and all the alerts that were triggered. So if you're working with a coach... Very easy to forward that report on and say, this is what's going on with my week. I use it with a bunch of my higher higher caliber athletes um, in order to modify their training and meat prep. Uh, I'm using it with myself because I just started dieting again. So I'm going to see how my wellness score changes as my calories drop and see if I can find some correlations with maybe my training volume is too high. Yeah. It's spiking my appetite. So maybe I need to drop my training volume down a little bit so I can eat a little bit more food figure out what's going on there. I'm a brief interruption. So audience, I apologize. I'm out of time, but I'm actually gonna let the guys continue talking because there's a bunch more cool stuff here. I have to be across the city in half an hour, uh, make another appointment, but uh, this has been really fun. Paul, you're actually one of the most well-spoken and clearly well-educated people we actually have on the podcast. So guys, like just 
if you've listened to this, pay attention to that stuff because there's clearly a mind here behind some really cool ideas. I hope you guys decide to check them out on social media. You guys will share that info a little after. I'll let you guys chat a little bit more. I apologize I had to run. It's actually great hey, to man, meet you in person the first time. You're shaking hands. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> guys, <laughs> we uh, can do that one. We've got more great guests coming up real soon. But I'll let these guys continue the conversation because I don't want to be the reason why we've cut this off well, artificially well, and early. All I want to talk about is basically like... Essentially, I like the idea of this because it doesn't, wearable technology is, like you said, inconsistent, not in a bad or good way. Like it just, you have to be smart enough to use the data in a way that correlates to what you want. And I just don't think that that technology in most people's hands is very um, effective. This is not that and you don't need to have all this shit. And it is effective because it it, it's even rooted in science. Like we can talk about cognitive behavioral therapy and all that shit. That right. is this. Just without the therapist. Right, exactly. And, and we took a lot of those principles into consideration when developing the app. You know, you talk about cognitive behavioral therapy. It's simply the reframing of your, your thoughts around your behaviors and around the, the, the actual thoughts that you're having. So it's, you know, reshaping that, that window that you look at the world through. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're presenting you with information. That information is either going to validate your, the way you're feeling or it's going, to, it's, it's going to put that into contrast and say, you might be feeling down, but you know, your mental health score is good. So why don't we look at your journals and yeah. see how your journals are reflecting the way you're feeling? Maybe your mental health is taking a dive because of certain lifestyle factors that we're also asking you about. You know, if, you're, if your dietary quality is consistently low and your mental health score is directly impacted by your dietary quality, it's not something you would know simply by thinking about it. No. You're not going to know unless you track. So being aware of what's going on and then being presented with the information in a very easy to digest manner. Well, and the problem, we've talked about this um, with a few of our guests, but the current environment that we're in, there's so much external stimulus that it's really hard to know what the hell is going on because things affect, like basically things block things. Yep. And so like people don't even know that they're not feeling good. Like, and if you track yeah. HRV, like it kind of tells them, but it, you don't really know till you step so far outside and we'll use like, I went to Costa Rica. You don't realize how different life is when you go to Costa Rica compared to here. Like I stepped here and it's like, you're living in like, and we're not even that busy here. This is not New York. There's just so much stimulus. It's, it's really hard to be aware. Like, it's hard to be aware. Yeah, the it was an interesting concept Jay brought up on a, another conversation that we had. It was, you know, the whoop app measures strain. Yeah. There's really no way that we measure our psychological strain. No. So in, you know, as we were evolving as humans, we would go through times where we were sympathetic dominant. We were hunting. We were escaping uh, predators. Yeah. All those things. But then there were times when we were calm. We were parasympathetic dominant. Name me a time within the, the 16 hours yeah, to 20 time. hours that you're awake that you are not being constantly stimulated in your central nervous system. Yeah, and it doesn't know the difference. Like we've brought it up. Like the people don't know the difference. Like your brain doesn't know the difference between a line and someone almost hitting you in a car in traffic. Right. Like same fucking thing. So we're our mental health score and the ability to correlate those things with your health is our way of saying, well, this is your psychological strain. Yeah. You know, this is this is your your mind. This is your your spirit. Yeah. Um, you know, it sounds really corny to say, but we want people to be healthy in spirit, mind, and body. And as a person, you're not truly going to be 
performing at your best unless all of those things are traveling in a cohesive manner. Yeah. Um, we, we get into this, this dichotomy when we're talking about health of it's either your physical health or your mental health. When the truth is, is that they definitely flow together. And there are times when your mental health might dip, but if you're not tracking, you're not going to know why that's happening. So we've essentially created a tool to help people measure and manage their lifestyles, adjust the factors that are out of focus to lead the best life that they can. You know, live your best life. Look, it's, it's, it's actually so funny because it seems really simple. Like it's, it's essentially questionnaires that pops up the stuff to make you understand what's going on. But like really you have to, it's hard to understand unless you do it because everyone thinks that they're good mm-hmm. until like you said, something happens and then they don't know where it went wrong. Yeah. It's usually like they hurt their back or they lost their, something happened, but that was just like the straw that broke the camel's back for using metaphors. Yeah, for sure. And one of the feedback that we got, and it was, it was a bit, I'm going to use the word disheartening because it really was, it was from a person who is a very respectable individual, a very high, a person that's held in very high regard. I don't know why I would use this app because every day is the same for me. Yeah. And I, I, all I could think was, that's the exact reason you should use the app because then if something goes out of whack, you'll be able to identify exactly what it was. Yeah. Um, and, and that's really what it is. It, we are teaching people to take control. We're putting them in the driver's seat and that's why we're using, you know, our, our catch, our slogan is a vehicle for change. Yeah. And we're really putting you in the driver's seat to make those changes for yourself. Well, it's kind of cool because it's, it's the same reason why there's an industry in psychology and therapists. Mm-hmm. Like if that shit didn't work and people didn't have problems, then we wouldn't need that. Exactly. And it's not to say that we need this app, but I think that we do in a sense because nothing's really doing it. And this is me totally promoting it. But like I'm serious because I've looked into all this other psychology stuff and that stuff matters and no one's really doing that. Some of the HRV apps do ask that, but it yeah. doesn't put it in the algorithm. No. It just it, it displays it visually, which is cool. But like I said, yours is kind of cool in the sense that it puts it all in one package. But you basically just simplified that piece of it, which something so simple is also probably going to be a little bit more effective because it's easy. Right. And so when you think about any business venture, you got to think about what problem we're trying to solve. Yeah. And the real problem that we saw within the health and fitness field is we're in a period of our our, you know, I'd say our lives, but a period of our human evolution where we have access to more health information than we ever have before. Then why are we so increasingly unhealthy? It's not because we lack the information. It's not because we lack the number of people to teach that information to others. It's the fact that the everyday person cannot create the links between the outcomes and the information. That's the gap that we're trying to do. We're trying to educate people on why their behavior change is meaningful and provide them with the tools to make those changes. And you're not going to have meaningful change unless there's understanding behind it. And we're just getting people to understand this is the way that we thought would be best for people. Yeah. Well, it'd be cool. Cause I said, you said your model doesn't involve wearable technology. Where do you see it involving that? Because it's not that I see them as separate entities, but like you're almost, you're almost, putting your line in the sand saying that the accuracy isn't as dependable. But it's still reliable information. Like it's it's, it's just valuable information and we want our users to have it. But the premise still remains that how you feel is most important. Yeah. We do plan on integrating with wearable tech, namely Fitbit, Whoop, uh, Aura Ring, um, 
And then we're also going to be working with uh, MyFitnessPal and, yeah. and other you know, nutrition companies because the nutrition piece is extremely important. Yeah. You know, you want to measure, hey, when my calories dip below X, this my happens. sleep duration went boom. And, and we... Name me another app that can show you the strength. The, the of reason why it's fucked up is because, like, we're talking about this app partially because you're here, but we were friends before this, so there was no intention to talk about the app. You didn't right. necessarily have the app, so like, I'm totally for it because of the merits of it because we didn't know we were going to talk about it. But it's kind of cool in the sense that, like, like I said, I actually try to look like what. Obviously, someone has to be fucking doing this. And the only thing I could find was on my HRV apps that I don't, they asked a few questions at the end, but it didn't matter because it wasn't the sexy information. So it got skipped over where yep. you basically made that information the purpose of it, which makes it easier to do. Right. It's not a side piece. It's not the side bitch. The, obje- <laughs> yeah. the objective information that you're getting from a wearable device has value. Mm-hmm. It has value in, Absolutely. in validating your feelings. Mm-hmm. It should not dictate the way you feel. And, you know, I, I actually, in my research, came across the fact there is actually a sleep disorder now based on wearable devices where people get anxiety about their sleep scores to the point where they don't sleep. It's called orthosomnia. Really? Yeah. It's now a classified well, disorder because well, of these wearable whoop, devices. Whoop, whatever. Like, again, where do there's... I'm kind of biased in the sense that I don't necessarily know if I trust their studies, but they tell people to sleep more. And it's just like, once you start telling people what to do, then they don't have control of the piece that like literally sleep doesn't, shouldn't have to be like, well, I need to go to sleep for two more hours because whoops head, I'm in sleep debt. Like it, it can't fucking tell you that. We already know that sleep debt is bullshit. Yeah. You can't repay your sleep. Debt. No, but that's what the, that's what their sleep piece is. And it's nothing against whoop. Cause I think that again, the metrics are kind of cool. And they, they do some really great yeah. stuff. And there's a reason why so many people are signing on yeah. to this because they do great work. But they're just like any technology, it's missing, it's, it's missing some pieces yeah. and it's flawed. And that's fine. Over time, their technology is going to be so much better. It's going to be so much more accurate. And, and we want to partner with a company like that that's trying to do great things. Well, and and they're, and it's just like gym aware. It's like all this um, velocity-based training stuff. Yep. They're, they're in, a lot of these companies are in the process of collecting data from their users to end up converting that into something else. So right now we're kind of in a cool stage where the data collection period is happening and that's scary at the same time because that process doesn't necessarily mean that they're getting the outcome that they say they're going to get, but it's still good data. Well, I'm not going to say good data. It's still data. It's still data and data will always have value. Data will always be one of the most sought after commodities. And it it would be interesting to see because your data is, this is when you can get into the whole argument of objective versus subjective, but yours is largely subjective which isn't necessarily being tracked in a lot, like in terms of like, Hey, how do I feel? Yeah, um, you're hoping over time that they're training to be better at subjectively answering these questions, which then your data gets better over time. Right. So the majority of the app is subjective. Yeah. All the objective uh, information that we're tracking is self-reported. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many hours did you sleep? You self-report how many yeah. hours you slept. Um, but when we look at, you know, the way we measure training, it's all RPE, yeah. the rate of perceived exertion. Um, from a volume standpoint, from an intensity standpoint, you measure the duration of your training, um, but it's self-reported. The big piece here is like, you have internal indicators of health and performance, yeah. you have external indicators of health and performance, and you have perceptual. So internal, you're looking at heart rate, HRV, things of that nature that happen inside your body. Yeah. External, you're looking at body weight, energy expenditure, um, 
the training volume yeah. would be external. Then perceptual is, how do you feel about it? Yeah. How are you responding from an, a, a mental side or a perceptual side? We're actually the only app that takes into account all three which of is, those indicators. Which is actually like, even outside of us talking about how cool the app is, that's fucked. Yeah. Like, it's kind of weird that, like, there's no reason why two guys from Canada <laughs> with a powerlifting background are going to be making an app about psychology. You would have thought someone else would have thought about it. And again, we don't know how big it will get, if it gets big, whatever. But, like, the idea is that you're starting to track this stuff and really no one's doing it, which is weird because I try to look for it. The only people doing it is in a psychologist's office when they give you the tests. Mm -hmm. um, whatever they call them. Um, so I, it's just interesting. It's interesting that no one's really thought of it because it is, like you said, a huge piece, probably the biggest piece outside of like what you're actually doing. Yeah. Cause the HRV and so. stuff, all that stuff is just information. That's not going to kill you. Um, but the mental stuff can actually like, you can get in such a deep hole that, well, we won't get to that, but there's that whole piece like that actually matters a lot more. Than it does. It does matter a lot. And, and I think, you know, without beating a dead horse and just like self-promoting yeah. crap out of, out of what we do, it's the app started with a goal of helping people. So Jay and I are both coaches. The app started as a way to, to monitor our, our clients' lifestyles a little bit better. Then it became, well, why wouldn't it be cool if we could see, you know, what lifestyle factors impacted one another? Then it became, well, why can't we give this to the general population? Yeah. Then it became... You know, how do we help more people? What's the biggest problem? The biggest problem is mental health. Well, but mental health and physical health never get talked about together. Let's link them together. Then it just evolved over time. Like this isn't something that we thought about in, you know, over dinner one night. This is five years in the making. So, I mean, a lot of thought has gone into it. A lot of effort has gone into it. And I truly want people to know that what we are doing is in line with our entire goal of why we started coaching people in the first place, why we started training people. I'm not going to speak for you, but I feel like I can say the reason that you like training people and coaching people is because you want to help change their lives. Yeah. Like it's fun to do that. It's fun to help yeah. people. And that's what I've tried to do with everything I've done is to say, I see how physical health and wellness has helped my life in totality. I want to teach that to other people. The app for me, MetriLife, is a way for, it's the culmination of my entire goal of the reason I do what I do. Yeah. It's how can I affect, positively affect the most people possible in a way that is easy to understand and that links the information that I have accumulated over time, it's MetriLife. Well, and, and it's funny because like the way I sum that up is you're kind of waking people up. Um, in our current environment, because mm -hmm. like you said, with the external stimulus, it's that like, I would just say people are asleep to these things and you're, you're basically, you're Morpheus given like, what do we call the blue? You're basically giving people the, the yeah. red is the red pill. Yeah. The blue pill. You, you're giving them a choice. Like here's the stuff. Um, you can, cause again, you're not telling you, you kind of give them hints how to start with yeah. it, but like, here's the information, do with it what you will, but this is affecting you. So you don't have to fucking do anything. You can continue to go about your day doing the same old shit. But I don't think most people go into things saying, like, I'm going to do things badly the same way I've always been doing them. And they may, but at least you know. Because I would say, I would argue that most people don't know how certain things are affecting them. And that's why tracking macros yeah. works for diet. It's like, oh, I didn't know this made me gain weight. It seems simple now, but it's not as simple if you don't, if you don't even know it exists. You only know what you know. Yeah. And the problem is, is you don't know that you don't know. You, you absolutely have no idea. Yeah, because we can say, oh, eating more food makes you gain weight. But it's like, 
it's almost like we're giving ourselves a reason to like ignore that information. But until it's like sitting right in front of you with numbers, like you ate this much and you gained this much weight and you've been doing this for a long time. It's like, Oh, now it makes sense. Yeah, but it's is. not, but it's not in a bad way. It's like, that's everyone. It is. Everyone. And the mental health stuff is probably on at least diet sexy. Yeah. Mental health isn't sexy. I mean, it's, uh, Stigma too. I, it is. It is highly stigmatized. I actually did a uh, Instagram live with Joe Sullivan. Another. Yeah, I was gonna say you just did that like yesterday, two days ago. Yeah, two days ago. So Joe, Joe has been very outspoken about the fact that he goes to therapy. Yeah. I have also been outspoken about about the fact that I go to therapy, and I think the more people that come out and and not admit, but like talk about therapy yeah. and the benefits that it can have, um, I think it'll help to remove the stigma. Yeah. But. There are things outside of therapy that you can do to help yourself. And, you know, I recently went through a very challenging time. We were talking about it before the podcast. You know, I moved across the country with my wife to a place where I don't know anybody. And that was really, really challenging for me. So what did I do? I went to therapy and tried to work on my issues. Um, You know, I'm using MetriLife to help me manage my mental health and journal. Um, I'm also doing a lot of writing and and self-reflection and work on myself. These are things that need to be spoken about and they work like they work and like even if you want to look at subjective level like it's been proven that this shit works and a lot of it's just awareness exactly um and even just jumping like writing itself is parasympathetic yeah because you're unloading and like we just don't get that enough i do it before bed actually yeah one of the one of the things when i when i go through down times or or periods of high anxiety yeah uh sleep is is the most challenging part for me yeah i found that journaling before bed and, and unloading my thoughts yeah. onto paper or into an app has been extremely cathartic and has allowed me to well, and it's super unsexy and I think that the second more people talk about it because it's just like even I've went through we've talked about this in the past yeah um, but two years I like changed my life but a lot of it went had nothing to do with like, I'm getting stronger and getting bigger and doing all these things but a lot of that success has come from the psychology piece of it and mo- most of it's just questioning between your ears and yeah. in your rib cage. Yeah. Between your ears and in your heart, man. Yeah. That's uh, that's where the, the most powerful changes can occur. Well, and that's why I like cognitive behavioral therapy. Not because it's like super easy and like they quantify certain things, but it just makes you question why, 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 what, what, what can I do this better? And like that's literally all it is. Like what can I, if this is bothering you, what will you do? Well, that's training too, man. But that's you, what you, it's you the same tra- fucking try thing. try something yeah. and you say, why did this work? How did it work? Can I keep it working? Yes or no? Okay, what do I change? How did it? How did that change affect me? And move forward. Well, and it, that almost ends up like if, if I want to tie this all to powerlifting or getting bigger or whatever, is that that piece will help the powerlifting. Absolutely. Because like super sympathetic driven sport, like getting turned off, turned off, turning that switch off Dialing. via via let's just use MetroLife or writing or whatever, that can actually make you stronger. So even if you like literally don't believe in any of that shit, it's worth a try because most powerlifters are willing to try all the stupid shit. Try writing in a fucking journal or scoring yourself when you sleep. Oh man, the, the the ten minutes a day that I spend journaling is probably the hardest ten minutes. Yeah, it's hard work, man. It is really hard work to to really look at yourself and, and be objective. It's, mm. it's really challenging. I think that's how you make it sexy, though. I don't know. Well, you. Make, I could do it shirtless. It's funny. It's, it's literally hilarious because the two, you guys are basically two meatheads, and you're making this. 
I know. Like in terms of like judgment wise, like if they saw pictures of you two and like, hey, this is Metro Life. Your Metro Life looks like super not clinical, but it's like super like happy and like welcoming. And then yeah, you both tat it up. <laughs> Does Jay have long hair? Like I've never met Jay, but Jay looks like uh, Moana. Yeah, he looks like he looks like the Samoan guy. Moana. It's like what do these guys know about psychology? Well, actually, they went to school for like pretty smart things. Yeah, so it, it's the the app has been pretty amazing. It's been a really long uh, a long process, but. Well, and that's why I want to bring you on the talk because it's it's like powerlifting is a big part of your life, but like you're clearly um, passionate about this. But it's not even just pushing your app; it's like you're passionate about mental health, probably because yeah. of your journey and stuff. But yeah. again, tying it all in, I actually believe in it completely because it's changed my life in terms of just even the awareness piece. And you can tie it into whatever you want, but it'll make you better, make you make more money, make you your relationships better, blah 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 blah. Tie it to something, I guess, objective at the end of the goal. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know. Our goals change over time. Yeah, how we respond to stressors changes over time, and being able to track that and and, and use that as you move forward is, is a very valuable tool. Yeah, cool, man. I think um, we'll wrap that up. Holy shit, this one one twenty five. We might actually push for the longest podcast. I think we've hit Sam Pogue. I think we got to one thirty. Man, if there's 30. one thing I can do, it's talk. <laughs> when you get me to talk about mental well, health or, or well, that, that's what I mean. Like forever. like for anyone listening, this wasn't the talk about his app. I just like I I just knew Paul's been doing like what was it called before? It wasn't called Metro Life. It was uh, so it started off as uh, Regulate, Regulate, yeah, and that was for about three years. Yeah, I could speak about the journey a little bit too. I mean, so we've gone through. This is our third develop software development team. Yeah. Um, we started off, we, we tried offshoring the work, Yeah. Uh, wasted two years and a lot of headaches. Um, <laughs> we are non-technical founders, so the ability to manage that offshore workload, we didn't have the experience. Yeah. Then we brought it back on, um, and then we had a disagreement uh, from a business standpoint with the people working on it domestically. Yeah. Then we went the route of, of bringing on two great guys who are now equity partners in our business. Uh, Zila Soft Inc. Yes. Two young guys who wanted to push and make their own company. Yeah. They are so incredibly talented. We got really lucky with them and, and they're, they're our partners in this. Well, I think that that's even huge for anyone else. Um, not even about the app. It's just like the difference between having other people invested the same way you are makes a better product at the end of the day. Absolutely. And, and when you want to talk about investment, I mean, this is, this is my life's work. Yes. This is Jay's life's work in a computer program yeah basically. which which sucks because you can't do computer programming yeah which is like interesting that because i i saw it in the old regulate days i actually like the other the regulate but this is way better um yeah everything that we had in regulate is it was that was totally bro because like even if you look at the colors it's like totally yeah totally bro it's black with bright green <laughs> it's like man they, these guys just want to make it look cool yeah they had like um Carbon fiber. <laughs> it was background. so sweet. It was super. See, I like that. Super but like that, like, that's not like. It's definitely not. The, I get why you switched it. Yeah, we switched it because it's not. Um, it's not a bro app. It's not. No. You know, it's not a training only app, and it's also not a mental health only. App. No. And, and we just wanted something clean and that would appeal to to most people. I don't. My mom wouldn't want to use the old regulator. No. It was, it was my mom loves Metro Life though. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, like I, I would say like that's kind of where you have the biggest opportunity. It's not in lifters who are gonna track shit. Because like a lot of high level lifters, generally if you tell them to do something and like it makes sense, they're all in. It's it's it, yeah. it'll help a lot more people that like literally have no idea about this shit because 
people looking for an edge, they'll look at all the stuff and they'll be pretty consistent. So, you know, we do plan on building upon it. We have a ton of plans for enhancement. Um, and the way we're going to enhance it initially is to make it more robust from a mental health standpoint. Because yeah. that's where I think we're going to see the biggest improvement. I personally, that's where I saw the questions were the best because, and because I'm a guy looking for all the edge, I already knew the other metrics quite well. I'm pretty self-aware, but it was the mental health. Like, Oh, that's fucking smart. Yeah. (laughs) It was like, Oh, those ones are good because it's like, Oh yeah, you're right. Um, and I think that that it's almost, I don't know. It was just cool. So, um, okay, let's wrap this up. If you're, where do people find you, read your articles? I know that's been a recent change. So where do they find all the stuff you put out? Yeah, so I haven't written any articles recently just because of all the work we've been doing on the app. But uh, so my training, um, my training website is called uh, masterathletic.com. You can find the app at www.one-lifeinc.com, onelifeinc.com. Uh, they'll have links to both app stores for download. Um, when you subscribe, it is an $8.49 Canadian per month subscription. You get a seven-day free trial. So you can try the app for seven days, see if you like it. And then if you don't, just cancel uh, within seven days. Uh, myself, you can find me on Instagram at Paul Oneid, O-N-E-I-D, or at Metrilife, M-E-T-R-I-L-I-F-E underscore, um, and then Jay is at Janeeze2100 on Instagram. And uh, Janeeze. Janeeze. <laughs> it's just sweet. Um, and also, like, go look. Go Not to say you haven't lifted anything heavy in a while, but there's some cool videos back in, not even back in the day, like two years ago. Yeah, you can peruse my Instagram if you want. You were like, a lot stronger. I was a lot stronger <laughs> back in the day. Now I'm, uh, I'm old and broken. I'm, uh, I can't really bend my knees much anymore, so I do a lot of stiff leg deadlifting. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Um, okay, anyone who, who, you know what helps, um, if you share, um, one of the cool things that I've been seeing is anyone who, like, tags us in their, I'm, I'm trying not to swear, tags us in, in the podcast on Instagram, it's easy for us to reshare, and it's kind of cool to see that popping up, so if you're one of Paul's, um, we'll call it fans, your, your fan group, um, you know, tag us and stuff, post it. We really like to get this stuff out there because especially like the MetroLift thing is like, I, I actually personally really like that. So even if you just post something on getting his app out there, that's sweet and just tag us in it. But other than that, um, it's cool having you, man. We'll go lift now. Yeah, but, sounds good. Yeah. Thanks. Shut up and sit down.